This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is August 26th, 2021. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is Bruce Avery. It's been my honor to be the general manager of Radio Hofstra University since January of 1994. So usually at this point I ask if you've worked on any particular programs or shows over the years. I have been a part of every initiative that the station has had um, for the past 27 years. So (laughs) to answer your question, um, in a way, a general manager is involved in every program uh, that the station does and everything that's off air as well. Okay. Um, usually in the, in, in the course of this interview, I'm talking to former students who were first introduced to radio at Hofstra or went there specifically for this. But, but your radio story starts a little bit before your time at Hofstra Radio. So can I can I ask you to go back and what brought you to radio? What was interesting about it? What uh, attracted you or, or did you just sort of randomly fall into it? Um, my radio career actually started at Emerson University where I went back after a career change to uh, get certified as a journalist with the goal of becoming a, uh, a science reporter on radio and television. And that also morphed into a four-decade career as being a broadcast meteorologist. And um, while I was at Emerson, one of the places that they had a place to do reports was on their radio station. And that started a long love affair with not only radio, but specifically campus non-commercial educational radio. And post uh, my own graduate college career, I always stayed involved in it. And, and then it became a partial career uh, along with the teaching in Middletown, Connecticut at Middlesex Community College where they had a, an early web-based station. And I went on to the University of New Haven for nine years where I was a general manager of WNHU. And then I came to Radio Hofstra University. At that point, it was WRHU in January of 1994. So it has actually become a love, become a career, and it's been a passion that has carried me in many directions that I never anticipated, but I'm really grateful that it happened that way. Before this experience at Emerson, when you went back uh, for your journalism degree, was radio an important part of your life? Were there particular people you listened to? Were there things that you thought, oh, I'd like to do that? Uh, Or did sort of that come afterwards? Absolutely, uh, that I was a radio uh, aficionado, um, mostly in the New England area and and specifically in the Boston area. Um, A lot of sports, and they had some legendary sports announcers up there, Kurt Mm -hmm. Gowdy, Johnny Most, Ken Coleman uh, for the Red Sox, uh, Gil Santos for the uh, uh, the the, uh, the Patriots and the Bruins, and um, Matty Siegel for music. All of these are Hall of Fame broadcasters in radio, and so I was more of a radio person uh, with theater of the mind and listening to. Uh, 
entertainment radio, but also informational radio, the early days of NPR and a lot of the specialized type radio uh, that has developed into mostly podcasts now. So I, it was a natural evolution for me to actually start to get into it on my own. That wasn't my initial goal, but again, I'm grateful that it has transpired that way because what had been a hobby became uh, had became a lifelong career. Normally, I ask people about their first experience on the air. Usually, it's their first experience at all being on the radio at Hofstra Radio. But I'm guessing that you had some experience there at Emerson or other places. Do you remember getting on the air for the first time? Um, I actually I do. Um, it was at Emerson, um, and I needed to get a demo tape because it was about three weeks after I went back, uh, and made a career change. There became a job possibility in Maine and I had no demo tape. So my graduate advisor and mentor had me go uh, cut a demo tape for television and also an audio tape because the particular job included both. And they sort of snuck me in on WERU. And, uh, and I went into the studio and was completely, completely unprepared. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I, I knew I knew what I was talking about. I wasn't certified in meteorology at that point. I got that subsequently, but I had always been kind of a, a weather geek, which was an advantage. So I got coached a little bit and I went in there with a script and I, I made a demo tape and the, and the radio demo tape came out a, a lot better than the, the video demo tape did. But it did get me enough to go up to Maine, get an interview, and I was a finalist for that job three weeks into my active attempt for a switch. Um, I didn't get the job, but it also gave me a, a clear idea of what I needed to work on. And within a year, I was working regularly in Springfield, plus finishing my graduate degree. So, yes, I remember the excitement. And yes, I remember the panic. And yes, I remember the confusion uh, of walking into the studio and having somebody point a finger at me and say, start talking. Can you describe what that studio or what that station was like at Emerson? Yeah, Emerson had has has had a really nice radio history. It uh, and and the and the studio at that point um, was, I believe, it was better than most because it was one of their signature things at Emerson, which is a communication school. Um, but it still was like many radio stations on college campuses, which was um, traditionally radio has not been well funded <laughs> so that um, you had some equipment that was purchased and some equipment that was hand-me-down purchased, uh, hand-me-down equipment. And often, as I found out later, alumni and participants um, came up with ways of, uh, of actually wiring studios themselves and and sometimes there were musicians and, and lent microphones and different things like that. So it had a new flavor to it and an old flavor to it, which is one of the traditional things about campus radio and campus media in general. But campus radio specifically was it, it was a combination of the old and the new as your uh, 
taking information and, and passing it on to the public. It has, a, it has a really special, unique, but universal vibe to it. Hmm. And, and not to give away either of our ages or, or experience, but about when was this? <laughs> um, I was, uh, let's see, um, it was 1975-ish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so you were at WNHU, you said Correct. for nine, nine years? years? Correct. Okay. Um, and you were a general manager there. And what was the, the, the size and scope of that station? What was that like? Well, the short form of WNHU was um, I was uh, a broadcast meteorologist in New Haven, um, uh, television and some radio. And I was also running an academic program at a two-year school. And the opportunity arose to uh, talk to the people because they were about at the University of New Haven to turn the license back to the FCC. And um, some folks had known what I had done in this place at the two-year school, and they had they gave me a tour, and they said, "Are you interested in talking about this? And what do you think?" And I was saying, "You've got everything going here. You've got a prime signal. You got 2,000 watts. You cover all the southern portions of uh, Connecticut and all the northern portions of Long Island. Um, I really believe that you and you have a history." You have a passionate uh, potential audience. It needs organization, it needs structure, and um, and I really I'd like to take a shot at it if we can work out the details. We worked out the details, and during the nine years I was there, it went from being what was something that the university was going to turn the license back to the FCC, and it was my honor that when I left there to come down to. Radio Officer University, which definitely was a career job. I had helped turn NHU around to being the most participated student activity on campus that did not give out scholarships. Hmm. The next question I usually ask is, again, an introduction for most people to radio. And and most of the 40-odd people I've talked to so far said they either weren't aware of a radio station in Hofstra when they first got there or it wasn't a top priority. And you're obviously coming from a different point of view because you're interviewing for a job. And as you said, as a career position. So what was it that brought you to Hofstra radio and were you thinking prior to that job opening happening about moving up or moving to a different arena from WNHU? Um, I absolutely was not looking to move from WNHU because I had just spent a substantial amount of energy bringing it into a place where it was a a real source of music and information for the New Haven, Connecticut area, which is a vibrant, vibrant area. But it came across my desk um, that the legendary Radio Hofstra University was looking for a general manager. And um, it would, I would have been remiss not to investigate it because um, what had already been accomplished at Radio Hofstra University uh, when it was WTNH and WVHC, as I said, it was legendary. You, Dan Ingram, uh, Lee Harris, on and on and on. I don't want to name names, but 
there are some of the absolute best of the best um, that ever participated in, in radio that had at least partial start and, and in some cases total start at, at, the, at uh, Hofstra University, Hofstra College and then Hofstra University. And so um, I investigated and, and, and applied and was interviewed and I, I worked through the whole process and um, um, I was really grateful that I was hired to come here and one of the things that happened was that my vision of what it it was and could be uh, was heard by the people in the hiring practice uh, and the hiring process because um, there had been obviously a change with the passing of Jeff Krauss, uh, who had been a core foundation in making the place legendary. Um, but Radio Officer University, even in those days, had everything had everything, and in some respects, it had a similar type situation to what I had found at the University of Haven, which is the fact that it had it needed structure and it needed to have a, a commonality set into it because there had been such a, a void, which, by the way, and, and, and the void was filled by folks like you, uh, yeah, Ryan, you were the general manager, you were the station manager when I came here as the general manager, and had it not been for people like you and your colleagues, uh, Suziza as the interim general manager and Jen and Todd and, and other folks that I'm sure that you've interviewed on this to help keep it going, which is one of the traditions of radio anyway, um, it may have fallen into a point where it may have been of no return. But even with that, uh, this place had everything to be something truly special again and potentially even bigger. And that's what I came here with the idea to uh, to give my skills to have accomplish. You, so bringing up my role or my, my existence at the time at the, at the station, and, and one of the things that, that as students, as undergraduates, that we had invested ourselves a great deal in, in the management and, and care of the station and, and uh, in the wake of, of uh, Jeff's passing away and, and, and uh, Sue Zizza and Steve Spencer were among the people who were helping us run the station at the time. And there was, there was a lot of speculation. There was a lot of worry about what would happen with a new general manager, whoever might get uh, hired. And you, know, you can react to this in, in whatever way you want. But one of the concerns that we had as people who had invested two and three and sometimes four and five years in the station and, and maintaining that legacy, as you said, that standard of excellence through those trying times, we wondered who this new guy was coming in <laughs> because we were not really part of the process. We didn't know. We heard, you know, a station that you'd been at. We'd heard about other candidates that were considered. So we didn't know what your motivations, what your goals were. There were people who said, well, he's going to be here for a couple of years and then move on to another station, or he's going to do this, or this is going to happen. So there's a lot of speculation. So as you were going in and you've already said, you know, this was a career job and you've obviously been at Hofstra Radio for, for 27 years now and dedicated your life to it. But that moment back then in 1993, 1994, what was, what was your expectation going in? What were you thinking was going to happen? What were you hoping for? Um, I was hoping for what has transpired 
but even what has transpired far surpassed my uh, my my vision and dreams. It, it has built upon itself because the original uh, analysis of Radio Austin University, even where it was, was it had everything. Proximity to New York, passionate uh, student base that wanted to participate, um, a history of, of excellence, as you, as you say. And all of that is what it takes to to build something uh, and rebuild something and continue to build something, which I have been part of happening, but it was right there from the beginning. And so I had, I understand what you were saying. And, and, and I also remember a couple of anecdotes that, that you probably remember as well, which was one, um, there was a, a mutual agreement that the, this, the, the process had sort of, sort of progressed, but I, I, you know, I said, how come I haven't talked to the students yet? And, and the students apparently said the same thing, of which you were one of them, and said, how come we haven't had a chance to talk to this person yet? And we met and had a, uh, you know, a Q&A with, uh, I forget how many of us that there were, but there was probably nine or ten uh, students and, 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 and a couple of what we now call community volunteers, one of whom is a dear friend and, you know, rest in peace, Dave Mock, who was mm -hmm. part of that, uh, where we, we had a, a, a very open and, and frank uh, conversation about uh, exactly what you were talking about. You know, what are your goals here? You know, how and how will you uh, achieve them? And the two things that I tried to express there and, and, and I followed up on uh, as, with as much success as possible over the next few years was one, I come to listen to find out what has made this place special. And I also come with some ideas of things that have worked for me in other places. And at the end of that time frame, as we move forward together, it's going to be a marriage of what has been uh, amazing in the past and some things that will uh, potentially carry it into the future. We've had many conversations over the years about that that time of, of you coming in and, and and getting used to the place. But I I'm not aware of the first time you were at Hofstra Radio. And this ties into one of the typical questions I ask. And and you and I have had conversations about what the environment was like and what the building was like. So for the people who weren't there in nineteen ninety four when you showed up or when you interviewed, I guess in nineteen ninety-three, the first time you got there, tell the people about about the station, things that you remember seeing or, or about the building, about the environment, or maybe people that you met along the way. Basement of Memorial Hall, walk down that ramp. Uh, I noticed that the studio was downhill from the men's room. Um, <laughs> uh, came into the, the main offices um, and uh, was met with a bunch of folks uh, who were interacting in a way that it's it's a classic uh, college radio arena. Good friends, good conversation, uh, a little bit irreverent, and um, uh, and and it was the energy level was exactly what I was looking for because that's one of the things that college radio is all about, and that is it's a people place that want to create entertainment and information and pass that on to the public. 
and that was there, and that is an essential. That when I say it had everything, that's an essential. Whether you're talking, we currently have a staff of over 250 students and about 25 community volunteers. Ryan, when you and I started this thing off in my run, the uh, we had 16 students um, in uh, January, and I think seven of them graduated. So the summer of '94. I believe we had nine students doing 20 hours a week, and we still had about 25 community volunteers. And now we're up into a, a different uh, role. We're over 24 hours a day. We go out in four different uh, ways, not just radio, but also different kind of web streaming and apps and different types of things. But we have we've become a destination location for people who want to polish their radio skills in all sorts of ways. But it's all still based upon the fact that people needed to be passionate to be there, and that was there. And so I can't remember exactly who was in the office, but I do remember uh, thinking I see it. I read Dion and, and Eric Hewler and Todd Packer and 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 uh, Jen Murphy. Um, and, and you know, again, I I I, I might be mixing in my first view with with some subsequent views but but I do remember walking into the place and saying you know this is home usually I ask at this point about the the training that students go through it's usually student-led training the announcing classes the engineering classes um, given that it was the intercession between the, the the fall and the spring semesters, and we were running on a on a relatively uh, small scale. We were always training people. We we're always bringing new people in at that point. Do you remember anything about uh, that spring? Because I I don't remember if we were training new people that spring or not. Um, do you remember about about getting new people in at that time or, or what was going on? I do. I, I remember it intimately because that was part of um, my pledge to listen and. Uh, find out what was working and and also then intermingle it with the things that I had found were successful for uh, the areas that I had been and that I could add my stamp and add on to the things that were already working. And training was one of it, uh, one part of it. Um, and um, one of, when I, I'm not sure if you remember this, Brian, but I made a pledge to the station that I wouldn't make any major changes until I had a chance to sit down mm -hmm. and talk to every person at the station all the community volunteers have a, a conversation with everybody and with people's schedules and everything that took greater, the greater portion of a year before it, it actually com was completed because, you know, just arranging all that stuff. And, um, but it also was a set of circumstances that I kept my pledge because I wanted to hear what people were saying. And, and, and training at that point was done with, um, about two or three interactions of a mentoring thing, as you said, announcing and, 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 and engineering. And at the end of those two or three sort of apprenticeship things, people were brought onto the station. They weren't just thrown to the wolves. They were done with kind of a mentor system. But it wasn't really an in-depth thing. And one of the things that I had brought with me uh, was a knowledge from at the University of New Haven was to set up a complete radio uh, introductory radio training class, which included the station, but also a whole bunch of things about FCC law and basic studio operations and everything else. Uh, it was free as a class, but it was rigorous. And and I 
at the end of a, a certain amount of time, it was about a year and a half in, you know, I said, we're going to do this. And, and a lot of people said to me, you know, you can't do it because, you know, it's a class. It's another class. And I said, well, people at school are, you know, they're kind of accustomed to going to class. And uh, a person named Dave Koenig was absolutely uh, integral in, in the evolution of the station uh, with me. And I don't even know if Dave knows how appreciative I am of what he did because he was um, – uh, a person that went out and recruited. We took everybody that applied that first year round. We had a class in the basement of Memorial Hall, and there were over 80 people in that training class. Um, and and we, we did a class. We were making the curriculum as we went. Um, we had sometimes people doing what we call tracking and mm -hmm. meaning in the studio with a, a current participant learning the boards and different things like that. Sometimes there were four or five people in the studio at once, which is not the most efficient way of doing tracking. Um, and, and we made it through and a good number of those 80 people become act, became active station members. And that was a huge leap forward for the station because we were operating lots of hours with not enough people to really to support that if as people graduated as people got ill or or they they transferred or whatever they had some kind of a life thing we needed people to make the place grow and I, i'm eternally grateful to the, all the managers at the time but i really wanted to give special accolades to dave because he went out and he, he he got people he was an enrolling type person got people to come in and and that was the first training class and some, since then, it's subsequently grown. So it's part of the culture of, of Radio Hofstra University where folks say, you know, what training class were you in? Were you in a spring class? Were you in a summer class? Were you in a fall class? And, you know, many people know the people that were in their class and become lifelong friends because they go through the entire thing. And, and now we regularly get somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 applications per semester, we do about 100 interviews, and the class is about 40 persons per class, not so much in the COVID era, but it all started with that, you know, putting all of that together to get people interested and, and, and up to a certain level where when they were entering the station, they had a knowledge, a working knowledge of what to do with an FCC inspector if they came or something along those lines. And um, it took a lot of people, uh, uh, saying, okay, we'll give that a shot. Um, Sue Zizza giving it a shot. You know, Sue and I, uh, you know, worked together on the curriculum. Um, and and a lot of the folks, again, I can't remember all of the different people because I, I, I don't want to say somebody that was a year or so uh, away because it's a long time ago. But it uh, it has become part of the culture of, of Radio Hofstra University and WRHU that it's the foundation as you know one of the things that's an absolute about campus radio is when people get good they leave it's what we do mm -hmm. and and so in order to keep the service to the audience you constantly need to be recruiting and training so that as people leave you have people coming in at a certain level of expertise um so the the shows don't uh, have a have a major dip and that is one of the things that you have a foundation of having the, the training class for. So I remember those days and, and um, 
and I'm, you know, I'm grateful, very, very grateful that it, it did the evolution because a great deal of what we did in that training class and the curriculum, which has evolved, but not all that much, was the stuff that was already being done at Radiohoff's University, but it was done in a much more formalized setting in the fact that it was a weekly class and, and you had studio time. It was kind of, it's kind of like a driver's ed where you have a, mm-hmm. a classroom component and also a studio component. And uh, it's become one of the foundations of, of how we operate here. Usually this question leads me to the first time that you were on air uh, at Hofstra Radio, but I want to I want to take a different tack in this because we talked about your first time when you did that demo uh, for that for that job application, and I guess because you're coming from a point of view of management, and when I think of my first time on the air, and a lot of people they're very nervous. It's it's something of a crisis because this is a new experience, and there's a lot of adrenaline, there's a lot of feelings about it. So can you recall the first time? Uh, being the general manager of WRHU where you thought this is a crisis, this is a, a, a moment of like, we got to figure this out. Like when's the first time that you said, we've, we've, we've got to go tackle this right now. When's that first big adrenaline rush? Um, there are a couple, but I'll, I'll share one of them with you, um, which was um, the very early into my career at, uh, at Hofstra, I realized that WRHU was coming up for a license renewal the next year. Hmm. And um, federally licensed radio stations and television stations, they get relicensed every seven years. And and you folks had been doing so much work <laughs> and quality work, <laughs> keeping the station going um, that the record keeping of stuff that's required by the FCC, um, there were gaps. Mm-hmm. And, and so I realized that I needed to be the person to come in and, and, and research what had been kept and what then needed to be collected, ascertainment records and you know, different things. And so um, besides talking to everybody at the station, uh, I wanted to make sure that at the end of that first cycle year that we went into the, because it, the, you, in those days, the FCC license renewal was a year long process where you had to put up announcements that you were going to go for a license and, and then you had to file paperwork that did that showed that uh, you had done things over the previous seven years that uh, were uh, in compliance with what the FCC had licensed uh, the station for, any station. And the, the good news was, is that uh, WRHU had done them all. The less than good news was the fact that we didn't have all the proof of accountability, proof of performance. So had to make sure that that was available. And that was a time consuming, it's kind of like being accredited in some businesses where you have to get it for licensing every so often, you gotta get it renewed. If there are gaps in paperwork, you have to figure out ways of, I don't wanna say recreating them, but you have to find ways of going back and talking to people. And, and that was a lot of water work. And so the second year I was here, you know, we did get the license renewed, which was a, a great step forward because it meant we then have seven years where we could, you know, concentrate on working on the programming at the station as opposed to, um, 
and you know, and, and more standardized record keeping, as as opposed to uh, you know, as opposed to worrying whether or not the license was going to go, and you know, and, and we wouldn't have a station. Hmm. You've mentioned a few names: Suzeza, Dave Koenig, Dave Mock. Who were some of the other people who were helpful in getting you established and comfortable and and up to speed at Hofstra Radio? Brian McKinley. That guy. Yeah, that, that guy. guy. What a pain. No, um, I know that this is uh, an interview by some fella named Brian McKinley, but um, yeah, what you did, Brian, in that time frame, um, there have only been three general managers in the history of Radio Hofstra University. Um, there were two full time and one interim. You're, the, you're one of a very few people, if not the only person, and you're certainly the only station manager that actually in, in, interacted with all three of those people. Mm-hmm. That is a very rare and an incredibly important um, bridge. And, and, and not only the station didn't fall to pieces, it, it actually moved forward under your watch um, and a time of, of, of significant upset. You know, you don't lose uh, someone that was as integral as Jeff was and legendary. I mean, you know, I, I never met Jeff personally, but I, I knew of him because, you know, I was involved in some competitions, quite a few of them actually, and we would always lose to Ofstra. You know, and so um, part of the reasons I was interested in, in investigating what was going on down here was, you know, I wanted to find out what made this place so unique. And, and I, it was what I expected it to be and thought it would be, but I didn't know it would be until I got here because of people like you. And you were definitely not alone. You know, um, the, the, there was a core of folk um, that, uh, that I won't say you lived at WRHU, uh, but you definitely were around a lot and carried, cared to keep it uh, not only going, but growing. And, and having fun along the way doing it. Bill Kaplan and Scott Smolev uh, doing uh, uh, The Dead Zone, which still exists, although it's now done by a community volunteer. Hmm. I, you know, I hate to name names because you know, the, you know, I, I, people are gonna be upset because it's just not coming to my brain right now. John DeCepolo is a name that was a, was, it was, a, it was a little bit after your time, I believe. I think it was like a year after you left, but it was a very unique story. He had been the kicker on the football team and his eligibility ran out. And he, you know, he came over to the station and he said, you know, can I participate? Because I know I'm not going to go to the NFL. You know, my goals had, and aspirations had always been in terms of uh, being broadcast media. So we trained him, we put him to work. And, you know, he's now had an incredibly successful broadcast career, which included eight years being a lead anchor in, in New York. Uh, he's, he's been in Florida the last like 15 years. He, he's had an extraordinary career and he absolutely uh, uh, bases the fact that he was able to transition from athlete to broadcaster of athletics and then subsequently news. He actually transitioned from, from, uh, from sports to news uh, and primarily all of it was he got launched at, at WRHU. So, I mean, there are many, many, many anecdotes and success stories. And, and two people that I have to mention uh, that were, were integral to me and maybe not as known to 
the general folk at, at, at and, and again, I also want to say the community volunteers, Bostia and John Mann, um, Giovanna, uh, and there are there are others, and I, and I really don't want to forget anybody. But the community volunteers were like like foundation blocks that we could work with. I mentioned Dave Mock. He, he's somebody that every person that every ever interacted with Dave remembers with great affection and respect. Um, and but two people that, that that were crucial to me and to and to uh, the station that may not have been well known was the acting dean, the first acting first dean of uh, School of Communication, Silvia G. Lombardo, um, who uh, who was kind of a, a mentor when they changed from a communication arts department and also into a, a school of communication when we moved from Memorial Hall into then Dempster Hall, which is now Herbert Hall, and also uh, the provost at the time who just retired, um, uh, Herman Berliner. Uh, Herman, Herman loved Radio Hofstra University. He was a huge fan. He listened to everything. And and quite often called in about things that you know he thought should be investigated and mm -hmm. you know and different types of things. But he those two people uh, really gave some feedback to me to give to the station. But at the same time frame, they did it with the idea of of helping it uh, have enough time to be seeds to grow into plants to grow into full uh, uh, flowering pl uh, flowers or. Or, or fruited uh, trees um, where I would like to believe that we are now. Um, if it had not been for that kind of support, um, uh, we would not be where we are. I ran across a, a photo, and I wish I could remember where it was, uh, but there's a photo of a few people in the office at Memorial Hall, and you're in it, I think Dave Mock, it might be Eric Hewler, uh, might be Don Dressler in there, and everybody's laughing about something, and I, I don't know what it was, but I remember seeing this and thinking how much fun everybody was having at that moment. I don't, I don't think it was myself that took the picture, but I, I, I have access to this, and I remember this. So this would have been the time we we're still in Memorial Hall before we moved to the new facility at Dempster, and you said before you felt comfortable right away but was there a moment or a time period or or a stretch where you went yeah this is this is it i'm i'm home i'm here i'm here for the long haul this is this feels right um it was almost immediate um but again it was a very complex time because there was a there was an existing planning and and building phase about ready to start and, and actually broke down, uh, broke down, broke ground in October of 1994. So I came in January of 94 and, and what had originally gonna be a freestanding building had been shifted to become a wing of the then Dempster Hall uh, with the idea of combining everything into a school of communication. An idea, by the way, I happen to agree with and I think has been extremely successful, but it, it involved all sorts of things because it involved shifting plans that that Sue and other folks have been putting together for years. You know, little physical plans of building, you know, to make it from a freestanding building to a wing. And, um, and so alongside of the license renewal, that was one of the things that was absolutely, 
absolutely something that dominated most of my time was to make sure that we, uh, when we made that transition, that we had done it right. And and as it turned out, one of the things, Brian, that, 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 that happened was there was a lot of conversation about condensing the size of the radio station mm-hmm. and making sure that everything was outfitted with maximum uh, materials. Um, and uh, because there was, you know, there were X amount of dollars and, 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 and with everything that was going on, it, it, that was a way to go. One of the things that I was adamant about was the ability to grow. And so uh, I was in a lot of discussions about, uh, about keeping the, the basic layout that had already been laid out and figure out ways of outfitting things that we didn't have the money right away to buy, you know, like hardware, software, et cetera. You know, in those days it was uh, multi-track mm-hmm. uh, scooters and, 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 um, and, and different types of hardware. Um, we did that. Um, it was controversial, but one of the things that really was another kind of gift because that was the era that it really had started to morph from analog uh, radio mm-hmm. to digital radio. So you basically, within the time frame that we're moving into that, which was not like six months, it was over a couple of years, did the transition from, you know, uh, something that took a full, full large studio to do uh, in an analog version with uh, uh, real to real tape mm-hmm. uh, to uh, multi-track studios in a box, so that we were able to because the digital era allowed it to become so less expensive that we were able to fully outfit the place within three or four years and and fully grow into doing multiple things at the station and included remote gear. We could do far more news remotes, far more sports remotes, far more music remotes. We did a lot of music remotes in those days where we went to clubs and we did live uh, 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 live uh, performances on the quad. I don't know if you remember any mm-hmm, of them, but... Mm-hmm. You know, folks like Bill Kaplan and Scott Smolev, and you know, we we would put on concerts, um, you know, in Common Hour, and you know, these are some of the greatest memories because that's where I'm talking about the passion of the participants and the creative uh, initiatives of the of the participants. These were not only standards of Radio Hofstra University; these are the cores of what makes college radio unique and has kept it going and going and going and going and going over the decades and the different technological changes and the and the and the pro, uh, projections of the demise of the industry of campus radio what keeps it going is that it's a people place first yeah you mentioned uh, earlier John DeCepolo and I wanted to call back to that cuz I've I've talked to Adam Chandler for this project I've talked to Lon Samuelson um and some other folks of that era in the sports department. And, and to be fair, I think, I think, I don't know if anybody would disagree with this, but our sports department sort of uh, was less participatory. I guess there was, there were fewer people, there were fewer events that we were doing. And about that time that you were coming in in 1994 and I was finishing up my senior year, uh, guys like Adam and Lon and John were coming in and sort of rebuilding the sports department and had a lot of ambitions and a lot of ideas about what they wanted to make it and to see where uh, uh, they were at that time and what has happened since. 
in terms of WRHU sports and 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 what the department is doing is uh, that that's that's quite a, a, a um, quite a journey you've witnessed and participated in, and it's about and, people, and it's about people, and it's about it's about passion and and you and I both know this, Brian. Um, uh, if you haven't, you should interview Todd Ant. If yep. you have, you know that Todd. There were heydays of of, of of WBHC and WRHU sports, which had fallen back some. Mm-hmm. And when I mentioned earlier in this podcast, you know, about this had everything, including history, that was part of what I already knew had been here. And yes, as you say, um, things like sports and some other things, different musical genres, public affairs programs, some things had fallen back because... Uh, there weren't champions to go ahead and do it. And also that, um, you know, it, it, sometimes what happens is things evolve. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. people's interest in different, you know, different. I can remember when alternative music was actually alternative. <laughs> <laughs> Show your uh, age again there, Bruce. Yeah, it's just we are. The uh, um, Well, I can actually remember where rock and roll was controversial. But, Brian, that, you know, I, that, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that. The uh, But. But yes, it took a person and then two and then four and then seven to resurrect and, 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 and get going on a department. Uh, a person I don't know if you mentioned, but was, was integral with it, I do remember and I'm grateful for is John Lane. Yeah. Uh, um, oh, he, how did I not mention John? Oh, my goodness. I don't know yeah. if you did or you did not, you know, but, but he, was, he was absolutely crucial in um, and in coming in and saying, look, for a while, I'll do everything you need me to do. And part of the agreement early on that I did um, uh, was that, uh, and this was, this was a stretch, was that um, one of the th- ways that we had been approaching sports was that we had been sometimes sending a student, a current student, but sometimes we were using uh, folks that were alumni that were out where the teams were to come in and do the games. Um, and um, I made a commitment that if we were going to do a game, uh, we were going to send somebody and they were going to have the equipment they needed. They, if they had to stay over, they would stay over and we would send uh, two people, which would be a color person and a play-by-play person, mm-hmm. and we would find the way of doing the revenue to do that. Now, we didn't really travel out of the Northeast because you know we didn't have all that much revenue, but we made a commitment to make it so that we did. And then any uh, previous station members that wanted to help out, that's great. They might give them a place to sleep so that we could cut costs, and they might come in as like a, you know a, a third person and as a guest host or something like that. But we always would go with two people, and um, if we were going to do it, we were going to do it right. And and you know, John kind of got it going, and along with the other people you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But you know, that was about the time frame that we started coming back as a sports department. And I think that one of the reasons that it started to come back was that we made a commitment to make it that, you know, if if we could count on you, you could count on us. That's exactly the story I was I was hoping you would recall. So, so thank you for that. I want to, I want to finish up here. And usually this is a very open-ended question, but you and I both know there's only so many zeros and ones that I can record here. So I'm going to put you on the spot and I'm going to ask for a one word answer. When you first walked into Hofstra radio, well, let me see if I can rework this. Hold on a second here. 
given your time, your experience, all the amazing things that have happened in your time at Hofstra Radio, could you have imagined any of this the day that you walked in the door for that first time at Hofstra Radio? Uh, I'm, I'm going to answer something, <laughs> yes and no. I know you want a one-word answer. Yes, I imagined great things. Yeah. And no, um, great things have happened, but many of them were things that were beyond my vision. It, it evolved in ways that I never saw it evolving. But that's a great thing because this is a place that people came and gave their creative input and ideas. And, and that's the thing about college radio. It is often on the forefront of programming. Things, music especially, but it's true for also informational programming, often gets tried out on non-commercial educational radio, college radio. And then if it flies, then there, there are commercial venues that take it on. And so, yes, I had really big visions for what this place could be. But it had, and a lot of them have transpired but also it has gone in directions, wonderful directions that I never anticipated. But all is built around serving the community with an educational mission where the people that participate here, student, qualified student, uh, Hofstra University students polish their skills. So it is a win-win-win across the board. Bruce, I think we've done a fair job covering your first, I don't know, two weeks at Hofstra Radio in this interview. <laughs> I, I feel like no, that covers... I, I would say we touched on the first 18 months to two years, but, um, but there's 25 more to go. <laughs> there's there's a ton of more stories and more questions, and uh, I, I really appreciate your time and your memories, and we're, we'll, we're going to do more of these, and, and, and I look forward to, uh, to hearing a lot more great stories. Thank you. One thing I would like to do, however, I do want to apologize to people that may feel, uh, how come I didn't mention them? It's only because... Um, <laughs> it's been 27 years. It's been 27 years and the format is squeezed and I, I wanted to do this extemporaneously. So it doesn't mean that I don't appreciate you or love you or respect you. It just means that in the moment uh, of, uh, you know, I'm 68 now and I will admit that, you know, my brain doesn't work quite as fast as it did when I first came here. Volume two, we'll just reading a list of names, and then we'll go <laughs> on to volume three. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bruce. This was great. I, I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Brian.